this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. SFFBI listeners, this is your co-host, Sharifa Williams. We're taking a break this week, and so we wanted to present an episode of First Edition, our newest podcast hosted by Book Riot CEO Jeff O'Neill. And on this episode, you'll hear me and Jeff talking about our SFF Instabuys. So the SFF authors we are automatic buy-ins for. And you'll also hear from Kendra Winchester, who hosts Read Appalachia and is also a Book Riot contributor. And Jeff and Kendra talk about uh, the 15th anniversary of two events that heralded the modern audiobook boom. So please enjoy this episode, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Today on First Edition, it's been 15 years since two major events shaped the audiobook boom we're still living through. Amazon buys Audible and Apple launches the App Store for the iPhone. Kendra Winchester, who covers audiobooks for us here at Book Riot, comes on to talk with me about how all this happened, the state of modern audiobooks, and what the future could be. Then in the second segment, going to debut a new segment. It's called the Instabuys. The idea is pretty simple. What authors are automatic buys when they have a new book out or new something out? Book Riot Director of Content, Sharifa Williams. She also co-hosts our science fiction and fantasy podcast, SF Yeah, joins me, and we each get to pick five science fiction and fantasy authors that immediately take our money. All right, let's get into it. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of When We Were Silent by Fiona McPhillips. So Louise Manson is the newest student at Highfield Manor, Dublin's most exclusive private school. Behind its granite walls are high-arched alcoves, an oak-lined library, and the dark secret Lou has come to expose. So Lou's working class status makes her the consummate outsider. That is until she is befriended by some of her beautiful and wealthy classmates. But after Lou attempts to bring the school's secret to light, her time at Highfield ends with a lifeless body sprawled at her feet. Then, 30 years later, Lou gets a shocking phone call. A high-profile lawyer is bringing a lawsuit against the school, and he needs Lou to testify. Lou will have to confront her past and discover, once and for all, what really happened at Highfield. Powerful and compelling, When We Were Silent is a thrilling story of exploitation, privilege, and retribution with themes of revenge, love, power, and secrets. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of When We Were Silent by Fiona McPhillips for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Random House, publishers of Wild Ground by Emily Usher. A story of first love that will break your heart. Wild Ground is a bittersweet novel that follows two teenagers whose all-consuming relationship is tested by the forces of class, prejudice, and addiction in a small English town. 
From the beginning, it has always been Neef and her beautiful, troubled mother, Chrissy. When they move to a small town to follow Chrissy's older boyfriend, it's a chance to start over. And on the first day in their new home, she meets Danny and the two form a friendship that gives way to the slow burn of romance as they grow up, desperate to escape the confines of their world and the forces that hold their families hostage, like substance abuse, poverty, and racism. Now, this is perfect for fans of things like normal people, euphoria, and sex education. It centers working class women in small town England. It's steeped in the dialect and lyricism of Northern England. So make sure to check out Wild Ground by Emily Usher. And thanks again to Random House, publishers of Wild Ground by Emily Usher for sponsoring this episode. Kendra Winchester joins me. We're going to talk about audiobooks. I kind of made up a reason, Kendra, to talk about audiobooks. <laughs> I don't know that 15-year anniversaries are... Is it, anyway, we'll get into this in a minute. But first, Kendra has written about a bunch of different stuff for Book Riot, hosts the Red or Dead podcast, writes about audiobooks for us, has written about disability for us, um, and a really good person to have come on to talk to me and nerd out about audiobooks. <laughs> I'm going to get into... Um, you know, why we're here and what we're going to talk about in a second. But can you talk about your relationship to audiobooks, what they mean to you, how you encountered them? Like, yeah, I'm I'm setting you up because I know a little bit, but other people don't. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I have been listening to audiobooks most of my life. Um, My mom introduced them first, just so she could have more time to do dishes or something while my brother and I were listening to these and coloring or whatever. But um, my brother and I both have genetic conditions um, where eventually it led to us having chronic daily headaches and migraines. And so we can't really read text. And we didn't understand all of that going through school. Uh, but eventually my mom just figured out like, oh, this is easier if they do their reading via um, audiobook. And so we always use audiobooks. And um, I remember the horrible day when I discovered that some audiobooks are abridged. That was that was a dark day. And it's, like, they don't did, really tell you, right? Like it's hard to did. know on the audiobooks. Like they don't say, and by the way, this is the abridged version. They, they typically they did not. It. And like as a kid who can't read text, am I going to read like the small text on the thing? No, oh, I'm not. So point. my mom had to comfort me in my despair. Um, but thankfully now most audiobooks are unabridged. But uh, I remember that. I remember when Overdrive, you could download it to your desktop. That was a big day. I remember when Audible used to let you burn the CDs of the, their audiobooks and have the little stickers on top. And so really, I think audiobooks are my favorite way of reading. And now as I've my conditions progress, it's my only way of reading. Mm. So now I read completely via audio or my screen reader, which it and I have a very tumultuous relationship as well. So mm. it's not my, it's not my favorite. We'll just say. <laughs> yeah. Mine's, mine's different insofar as I don't have an accessibility reason to choose audiobooks, except like everyone, I can do different things while listening to an audiobook than I can do while using my eyes to read text. Like I, I, I remember my first audiobook experience was, um, I don't even remember what the book was, but I was painting a room and I wanted to listen to something and I picked up an audiobook and I think it was audible. It must have been audible. And really pretty quickly it became my preferred mode of reading for a certain kind of book. The celebrity memoir, I think, is not not even it's not even to be a celebrity memoir, but if it's a memoir or a biography or it really essays, nonfiction of any kind, I prefer that on audio and I prefer to have the author read it. But it's a huge chunk of my reading, about 30% of my books that I read in a year on audiobooks. And 
not a lot of them would I have read without there being an audiobook. Um, there are books I haven't read because there was an audiobook because that's the format I wanted. I don't have tracking going back to these, you know, the early days. Um, I I wasn't in the realm of using, I guess, physical media. I never did a tape. Actually, that's not true, Kendra. My family listened to um, an Anne McCaffrey book called The Weavers of Pern on tape, oh, which I is a fantasy. Um, and that was our first experience with it. But as you know, it was clunky, right? You needed a reason yeah. to go do a tape or CDs. Um you know, really before the digital transformation. And we're mostly associated, I think, in the cultural landscape with older people. Like I remember going to the library and seeing huge stacks of Louis L'Amour on tape. Like that was that was my principal understanding of what was on audiobook. And that changed about 15 years ago. And that's why we're, we're here a little bit to connect these two things and then see if I'm right. And then just look at the bigger landscape. So a couple things happened 15 years ago in 2008. Um, I graduated I don't know if, high school. You graduated high school. There you go. Well, I'm <laughs> a lot older than you. I'm not going to say when I graduated high school. <laughs> so this is probably what kicks it off. What Kendra Kendra puts on the mortarboard and the whole world of uh, her reading world changes. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Um, a good moment. <laughs> the app store, which is the app on your iPhone that lets you download non-Apple apps, goes public. You may not remember this. You were in high school. Probably the getting an iPhone was probably a big deal for high schoolers. I can imagine it was a big deal. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get one until I graduated college. Okay. I yeah. had a little like those those slidey things that have like the keyboards on <laughs> yes. them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the sort of BlackBerry knockoff kind of things that happened right around the yes. same time. Yes. <laughs> so the App Store went public, which means that developers they'd have to go through Apple's approval process, but could put arbitrary apps on there, which made it more than just a device for doing Apple things, browsing the web, sending texts, getting very bad internet connection. I think the 3G iPhone had come out right around then. So that made a platform for having a mobile digital media player that was network connected, right? So there's infrastructure for audiobooks to really take off. And the other thing that happens is that Amazon buys Audible. Audible mm -hmm. was an independent company that produced audiobooks. I don't have experience with Audible before Amazon, so I'll, I'll throw it to you in a minute if there's anything you remember from the pre-Amazon days. But Amazon had already established itself as the leader. It still is in eBooks, and them turning to audiobooks in a real way supercharged that. It was discoverable on Amazon.com, which still can, was then, I think even then already, the, the biggest um, book retailer in the US at least. And you had Kindles, and you had audiobooks. And shortly thereafter, there was an Audible app and you could get your audiobooks on your phone basically instantly. And I think that is those were the two necessary conditions for the there's no other way to say it explosion, right? In the in yeah. the amount of audiobooks that's happened in 2008, the total audiobook industry in the US was 172 million dollars. Last year it 1.8 billion dollars. So that's a <laughs> tenfold increase. And it not all that was at the beginning. Like the last 10 years, there's been a 10% plus annual clip. So still growing. I saw one chart I didn't put in this, Kendra, because it was too ridiculous. They're like extra. Here's what the audiobook market would look like in 2037 if it keeps going at 12% a year. Basically, it'd be bigger than the entire publishing industry. Like, I don't think that's going to happen, <laughs> but it just shows that this is a huge part of the publishing landscape. And to the point you were saying right before that you saw a stat that ebooks are. 
10.8% of the market and audiobooks are 10%. So pretty soon they're going to be bigger than eBooks, which I would have lost a bet on in 2011 when we were starting book right? Like that was a thing. So Kendra, am I right or wrong? What do you think, make of my hypotheses of these, like these twin lightning strikes 15 years ago? What was your experience of it? What else should I be talking about when we talk about this moment? Well, I, I found it really interesting because I, I uh, had to quit listening to as many audiobooks because uh, people, my professors would put in the syllabus that you were not allowed to use e-readers or audiobooks for your class. Really? Why? Yes. Uh, they were very elderly. Yeah. I imagine. Okay. Old school. Let's that maybe. <laughs> yes. Maybe oh, that. Okay. There we go. That is. Yeah. Yes. They were very old school. And while I was old school in some way that I took notes by hand and, and actually wrote in a notebook, um, they wanted more are uh, traditional ways of consuming a book. And there has been historically, you know, we're going to talk about this later, the prejudice against listening to audiobooks. But I think uh, with with audiobooks, you know, a lot of families, for example, would go to Cracker Barrel and pick up an audiobook on CD and rent it. And you could turn it back in at any Cracker Barrel. Mm. And I remember friends doing that before Audible was bought by Amazon. You could burn the CDs. And I think you know, it was a natural fit for Amazon to buy Audible because they already had, you know, they were doing the whole border situation. Um, yeah, right. So I think it's very interesting. And I agree. I think having it come to your phone was very helpful. But also, I think there was a delayed, you know, moment there because not everyone had smartphones. No. It was a while before the smartphone became the most popular type of cell phone. So um, but yeah, it does, it does make sense to me. And I think, you know, also you have the simultaneous process of overdrive becoming a computer program and then becoming right. an app and that whole situation. Overdrive for those of you who don't know, I, I think, and it's not close, it's, it's the far and away the most popular digital distribution platform that libraries use in the U S and I think Canada as well. And their iPhone, oh, I'm sorry, their uh, mobile app is called Libby, um, which to my mind was a wonderful um, change from just the Overdrive app. Some people have fondness and like it for different reasons, and that's fine. But now 30% of people get their audiobooks from their library, and that's only possible because Apple allowed Overdrive slash Libby, and there's other ones, Hoopla, Canopy. I think, I, I don't know, some of them are also owned by Overdrive, but at any rate, you could put that on the phone and make it easy for people to get. And I think you're right that it took a while both for the phone, you know, they're very expensive. They still continue to be very expensive to have a to, to yeah. an iPhone or even a modern Android phone. But I think culturally it took a while too, because there was stigma, as you say, as you experienced in your class. And I remember writing pieces on the site um, when we first started 2011, 2012, you know, to the effect of listening to an audiobooks or real books and listening to a book count, quote unquote counts. And that was real for a long time. I feel like that's pretty much gone. I thought fascists were pretty much gone. Turns out I was wrong. But I think <laughs> this is pretty much gone. You would know better than I, Kendra. What's your sense I, of like the, I would I would definitely say it's it? still it's still there. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is that this question has been a question since you know audio was in yeah. you know, audio recordings were invented, right? So right. it's not a new question. I think we now recognize that it is an ableist question in a lot of ways, but as new people discover audiobooks as that, you know, more people discover them, read them, buy them, it's like they have to go through their own process of this question. Yeah. And I know Libro FM, for example, which is an independent audio distribution company, 
they often do a lot of marketing around this question because they still mm. encounter this question all mm. the time. Um, but I will admit I am, I am, I don't know, this question is exhausting. It's almost yeah. like I don't want to answer why we should read, you know, diverse literature that we should, that why are we still discussing this? That's kind of how I feel about the art audiobooks actually reading conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's an interest. I don't think the question is open at all. I'm more interested in like what the cultural attitudes, at least for this moment of like, I don't, we don't hear it on the site very much. We don't get long common threads of like, that's not real reading. Again, I, I think there's probably people out there that feel that way. They're wrong. But one of the things that's happened is the normalization for lack of a better term, or the culturalization to people that audiobooks exist, that they're pleasurable and they have advantages that print or digital texts don't. And now, and then a lot of stuff happens, right? I think it's even hard to understand how different things are now than they were. It's not just that it's 10 times the the sales. The landscape is completely different. Like what was your experience of finding audiobook versions of books you were interested in when, when you were, you know, kind of in this pre-2008 era? Could you find most things? Did you have to struggle to find things? What was that like? I really struggled to find things because at the time, like textbooks, for example, were not typically yeah. on audio. Yeah. If you qualified, I know there are like nonprofits for blind and visually mm -hmm. impaired people who would record that for you. But as someone with a cognitive slash genetic thing, I kind of slipped through the cracks of, of that kind of accessibility at the time. And I think that's also, you know, a different conversation about like knowing what resources are available. Right. But I, I remember in grad school, I finally just decided because my condition was progressing in grad school, I was getting a degree in English literature and my professor was one of the ones that didn't want us to use audiobooks. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to see if he notices in my papers or my work. You know, he, he didn't. I mm -hmm. went to LibriVox. I found the octopus. I found the jungle and I'm listening to this American naturalism. And he never knew that they were performed by random people from all around the world. Mm -hmm. um, but I couldn't find them on audio. I think they are now, but at the time I had to use LibriVox, which is like an open source thing where people right. can just record whatever they want. And so each chapter is by a different, like recorded by a different person. So that was an interesting <laughs> listening yeah. experience for sure. And it's still not, the, I mean, I don't mean to make it sound like it's the case that all new books are available on audio. They absolutely are not for reasons that maybe we'll get into. It's an additional expense, right? To, to make something yeah. into a, a good, even passable audio book. And some books are just so small or there's technical reasons. You know, I'm not sure how much like math textbooks, that must be very difficult. I, I could imagine there's difficulties in a lot of different ways. I should also say that some they're there for bad they they don't exist for bad reasons of not wanting to address the market or not wanting to do the work just wanting to do the work for some reason not think the business case is there. I've listed I used Roman numerals which is dumb because now I have to translate in my head which how many Roman numerals <laughs> there are, but I have like nine big bullet points for how the audiobook landscape is different now than it was then. I, I kind of hit the first one, which is the percentage of audiobooks that get an audio version. It's pretty rare for me to to run across a book I'm interested in on audio of to do to listen to on audio and not find it. It does happen very occasionally, but I couldn't tell you the last time. But it's still there, so I've got one covered. What would you pick next, Kendra, as being something that if you know your 2007 self would wake up in today's audiobook landscape and and be like, oh my god, I can't believe it's like this now. Uh, I would say the boom in narration and availability from uh, professional 
yeah. uh, producers because, you know, back in the day when I'm listening to like, you know, the Bulgariad or whatever, you had this like <laughs> this stately gentleman reading and I, I have a lot of affection for his voice and, um, but it would be a type of like almost radio voice that some people would have. And it yeah. was like, they hadn't quite figured out what would be the best style of audiobook performance. And I think as we have seen it develop over time, and I was just reading um, the the untold story of the talking book, and he was describing there was a big debate on what is the best way to perform an audiobook. Hmm. And that is a conversation that's still happening, but I feel like now it is a more established sound because we have Bonnie Turpin and Robin Miles, Kevin R. Free. Um, Adam Lazar White, all of these incredible narrators are kind of, you know, pushing and progressing the art right. of audiobook performance forward. And that's really great to see. Yeah, I think that is something, again, some, so much of what we're going to talk about here in the next few minutes is because there's so much more money to be had yes. so that other kinds of things can be funded. I'll go kind of a related one, which is I was talking on the Book Riot podcast, I think last week about this new Tom Hanks book that has a full cast. I was, you know, the one of the ones that came out recently that I I don't do a lot of fiction on audio, but every now and again I will. George Saunders, Lincoln and the Bardo has this unbelievable cast. I don't understand the economics of this. I, I've this is one of my open questions, maybe say for the end, like how much did Rosario Dawson get paid to narrate Artemis by Andy Weir? How much does Rosamund Pike get from Spotify to do these bespoke Jane Austen versions? I have no idea how this works, but the specific dollars don't matter here so much as there is money to be made and can get celebrity stars to do these books, which means there's a lot of money um, to be made here. So full cast recordings, the professionalization of narrows, uh, the professionalization and availability, just as so many more available on audio and that they sound great. Um, and I guess along the road with that, Audible is still the dominant player. Though it's yeah. not as dominant as it could have been. You mentioned Libro FM. You can now get audiobooks through, you could get Barnes & Noble. You can do just through the iTunes store itself. Um, you can do Kobo. It's a commodity, right? Because these are digital files that basically, like other books, can be disseminated in, in many kinds of ways. I think that's something that's turned out to be pretty interesting as well, where Audible created, I don't know, created, initiated, catalyzed the modern market but the market is so big enough now that the ecosystem can be a little more diverse. Um, we've talked about Brandon Sanderson and some other people up, Corey Doctorow, troubling the split fees and everything that goes along with that. But you can, you do have some choice. You can buy it from Google. You can buy it from other places. Now, the price variance is not that much. And I have some antitrust and other kinds of questions about how all the, all the memberships look like they're about price the same and all the full price ones are about the same. Um, that's one there too. I guess one other one that is a little bit not about audiobooks, but more about what we're doing here is other kinds of digital audio. You know, the troubling of what an audiobook is, is not what's going on out there. Have you done many of this sort of, I don't know, audiobook only, audiobook first, experimental yeah. audiobook stuff? What's your take on what works and what doesn't there? Yeah. So, you know, audiobook only, um, is is interesting. I remember um who is the the guy who wrote the Dead Wake? Uh, I don't um, remember. And the in the Garden of Good News was something about the World War II. Anyway, he's yes. he, he writes a lot of those historical narrative type of stories. 
And he did one that was audio only, and it was a fictional ghost story. So not only was he moving to fiction, it was audio only because he wanted to like replicate how ghost stories are told. And I thought that was really interesting. Eventually, there was like a year later or something, the print came out. But I really find that interesting that a lot of people are having this, you know, discussion around what is an audiobook. I remember being at the last uh, BEA and RIP BEA. Oh, uh, BEA. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, and they were having this discussion and they're like, any content on audio is an audiobook. And I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. Yeah. Um, in the untold story of the audiobook, which I will send, I will send you a link. So yeah, yeah, I'll put it in there. Can look at it since I'm apparently going to be mentioning it so much. But uh, his big definition of the audiobook is how this audio media is always connected to a text, to okay. a print text. Interesting. And so that it is like a a audio version of that text. And I find that interesting because you know we understand that movies and and TV are different, right? Mm. But they are similar in that they're created in the same way, but one can be serialized or maybe it's a mini series. And I think audio is similar. There's, you know, radio, there's audiobooks, there are podcasts. I feel like audio genres are, are developing in their own way, which yeah. as someone who uses a lot of audio, I really like to see. Yeah. And, you know, like a short story is not the same as a book, but even though they're made out of text, one is longer than the other. I wonder if they could... Short form audio is a really interesting category. That's something that, you know, places, podcasts especially have done this. Another and place- Honey, Honey Perry did did yeah. a, a, the, uh, an audio, uh, Audible original. Yep. And it's um, a dangerously high threshold for pain, I think, mm -hmm. about her experience with Graves' disease. And I'm a huge Amani Perry fan. Uh, and so I was so excited to see this audio book because a lot of times I, I struggle to find articles online on audio. And so I always love to see them, you know, come to audio in different ways and yeah. uh, just a huge fan. I just go by I, everything that she writes. <laughs> I think that's a really good point, Kendra, about the discoverability and there's still work to be done or there's still opportunity, whatever you want to put it for making audio versions of other text like things, text lengths, text formats. There's still a lot going on here. You know, uh, can you do a subscription podcast that's a book. Like there's some fiction, there's serial fiction podcasts that if you strung them all together would walk and sound yeah. like the duck that is an audiobook, but that's not how it's released. And so the wider audio market has, you know, if you throw podcasts in or other kinds of audio listening, it's bigger than the audiobook market. But a lot of the same things that made audiobooks interesting became to podcasts and other kinds of media. And they inform each other, right? Because there's a bigger market for audio things. So that's, there's new tools and technology. Like, for example, we're recording on Zoom on home mics that are pretty good, that are going to sound pretty good with not a lot of editing, which wasn't really possible 15 years ago. And some of that is because the market has suggested that we want production tools. And it doesn't have to be you and, um, I don't know. Yeah, Tom Hanks, who narrated Ann Patchett's last book <laughs> in a studio to, to make a decent sounding audiobook or a decent sounding podcast. I'm going to clear out a little bit for you about accessibility right now, um, because I know there's a lot that's happened that's great, and there's a lot of work to be done. Give me an overview about audiobooks as being accessible. What's great? And if you could change a couple of things with the magic snap of your fingers, what would you change? That is a very interesting 
That's a very interesting question. Um, I One of the things that I appreciate about the way audiobooks are now is that there are you know, there's more to choose from because non-disabled people have been injecting money into that market, which I am happy about. But what sometimes is lost is the centering of disabled people's experience mm. with audiobooks as an accessibility tool. A lot of times I will hear, oh, yeah, well, you know, some people can only do audio, but most people and then they go on and center the most people. And I think when it comes to being a marginalized community who's using this as an accessibility tool, I would really like to see more uh, bookish media in general to center disabled people's experiences. Um, I know a lot of, you know, several people at Book Riot have written about, you know, our experience with that. Lit Hub has mm. um, a contributing editor who does a, a column about audiobooks and he is blind. So, that is really cool to see as well, but that's that's the exception, not yeah. really the rule. So I would really like to see more of that, um, especially when we talk about like AI narration. Yeah, I I get a little bee in my bonnet about it because no one was asking disabled people; they were kind of just telling disabled people like what they should think about AI narration <laughs> or making assumptions, and. Uh, not only were they ignoring audiobook narrators who have a lot to say about it, but the community that we would impact the most, they weren't really asking questions to. So I think uh, I think maybe how audiobooks are talked about and framed would would be great. Um, but now I will say, like, I've never lived a better audiobook life. I have like no. a dozen apps on my phone uh, and I'm able to get everything from Scribd to uh, Libby Hoopla, Audible, Libro FM, um, the PRH Audio people now have a great program for digital audiobook arcs that I'm a part they of as do. well. That is it's a amazing. secret sauce. It is amazing. It <laughs> is like I, I, it's it's so good. Um, Audiophile Magazine. Um, I contribute to their podcast, and they have really um, created a beautiful, um, almost like style guide of how to discuss audiobooks that mm. I did not realize until I started, you know, talking with them and going through their, the process of reviewing for them. And I think that they've done really a service for audiobooks by creating a lot of standardized language for how to discuss audiobooks and review them. I need to check that out because sometimes I still struggle. Um, I will definitely check that out. and link in the show notes. You can find that, uh, bookwrite.com slash listen, or just in the whatever podcast player you're looking to listen to, I'll, I'll make sure Kendra shoots me over the, the good linkage over there. Uh, let's see, what didn't I cover so far? Audiobook stores, full cast recording, narration. Yeah, I think we pretty much covered what's, you know, what what was new. Um, let's do a little stat where we are right now. Uh, over 23% of Americans listen to at least one audiobook in 2021. These uh, is a link at wordsrated.com. I'll put a link in the show notes there. Over the last 10 years, the share of US adults who listen to audiobooks has grown by more than 100%. So that's kind of what we're talking. There's just a lot more people. Some demographic stuff, women listen to more audiobooks than men. Um, They're 13.6 more likely to consume audio content, though increasingly the split gender stuff here makes less and less sense to me, but that's what we have. Hopefully in the future we'll have different kinds of demographic breakdowns. Black people listen to the most relative to their population. So per capita, 26% of African-Americans listen to audiobooks over the last 12 months. And younger people are more likely to consume audio content. 
That's really interesting. That one, I think, Kendra, I would have still thought older people like me. You're still young. You're gonna. Be, I'm gonna count you as young, but old <laughs> old people like me, I thought would listen to more. And I guess that really speaks to the de-stigmatization store, stig- stigmatization story that's happened over the last 15 years. I guess as audio format has become technologically more sophisticated, younger people on the whole tend to adopt new technologies earlier. So it just so happens that this is has sort of become more like an app on your phone than CDs on your library bookshelf. Um, very, very fascinating to see. Yeah. Any one of those jump out to you as, as needing more interrogation or anything else you want to say about those? Uh, I think that last one is, is especially interesting because uh, older people who had lost their sight, what used to be the primary... Yeah. Um, market for books that were created by different nonprofit organizations that served um, blind, visually impaired people. But I also find it interesting because I, you know, my grandma, she used to have a Kindle, which she preferred over audiobooks. And with the Kindle, mm. she could enlarge the text. And that was a big yeah. thing for her. And so that's what worked for her. But my mom, who is a generation younger, prefers audiobooks. Huh. Um, yes. And as, so as she's had to have more different types of glasses and bifocals, et cetera. Um, she, she has moved towards, towards audio, which is, I don't know. I think that's really, that's really interesting. Yeah. So that's where we are right now. Let's talk about the future a little bit. What's still, what work is still to be done. We're, we're excited about what we'd like to see. Um, I, this is where I'm putting my bone picking with the audiobook industry and marketplace. So I'll <laughs> save that and uh, I can be a little cranky for a minute. Um, what's exciting to you that's going on in the world of audiobooks? What are you looking at? It's like, that's great. Let's do more of that. I really, I really like how own voices narrators, as as much as they yeah. can be own voices, is right. becoming more of a priority for the industry. And you I mean, some groups it's very difficult. Like Crystal Wilkinson's The Birds of Opulence is about a group of black women in Appalachia. And they have a very unique Kentucky Appalachian accent, which mm. I I am appreciate that the narrator did not attempt, but they tried to give a little bit of flavor of like Southern dialect flavor into their performance. Sort of like when you have a text, you don't want like local color dialogue a ton or it will overwhelm your reader. Yeah. You just want like a, a seasoning of it as it were. So I really appreciate the push towards that movement. I mean, look at um, House of Cotton. Yes. By Danette Illage. Oh my goodness. Obsessed with that book. People need to go listen to it. Um, immediately after this. I loved it. I loved it. Such a great job. Yeah. So as there's more, I guess the, the ecosystem becomes more diverse in lots of ways. There's more coverage, right? More kinds of narrators covering more kinds of book and you get something that makes sense as, as doing matchmaking for the subject matter, the title and, and the narrator as well. I guess one, I will follow up on that a little bit is... I would like to see more coverage and I don't know how you do it. And maybe that audio file, like I'd like to see more coverage of narrators because I look at publishers weekly print. That's my what's coming out soon. And there are some narrators I like, I would love whenever they know, as soon as the, the publishing world knows or on Edelweiss, there's usually a separate, um, uh, entry for the audiobook versus the you know library book or the the hard or the hardcover. I'd like to know all in one. Who's the narrator? Can I follow them? What a little bit more about them? Because for me, it's so important, and for other people too, it's important to know. Like, 
I think one thing that's a little bit different, at least for me, and I think this is, I'm not the only person to experience this though. I think a lot of people do is like the narrator can make or break my interest in an audiobook. Samples yeah, are so 100%. important, even more important to me, frankly, than a sample of, of text because for whatever, it's just more personal. It's in your ears. Um, when you're reading text, it kind of gets filtered into whatever your default experience of that text is with some, but someone really is imposing or imposing maybe is strong, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, they really are giving a take on what the experience of that book is like. And sometimes that can grate as, as much or not more than stylistic choices. So I'd really like to know more about, as I'm looking for my titles and deciding what to do on audio and how to talk about them a little bit more earlier, because that, that's very insider baseball, but it's still pretty striking to me. Also that sometimes the audiobooks aren't available when the, the street date of the hardcover still is pretty annoying. And I don't quite understand why that's a problem. I'm guessing they're locking the text later. But if the book still has to be printed, it seems like that's enough time. Um, I want to throw this to you. I don't know how you acquire your audiobooks, how many you buy versus um, check out or other you know arcs or other things. What are we doing with pricing? What are we doing with these subscriptions <laughs> and memberships? Kendra, talk me off the ledge of really getting crazy <laughs> about this again today, because I can go this way about pricing for audiobooks. I, I do not understand it. Either I'm looking at the Audible 50% off sale right now, and yeah. I'm like, why are 50% off 25 for some and then um, a lot lower for others? I think it depends on if it's an indie audiobook publisher versus a, a big okay. five. Is what well, I would guess. That is a guess. I don't have any like stats or anything. Um, I think it's also interesting that when you have an academic book, say from, I don't mm -hmm. know, uh, Princeton University, whatever, and they have an audiobook that is going to be a more expensive audiobook. Um, also, a lot of indie and smaller presses, like they don't have the ability in house to do audiobooks, so they sell the rights separately, and that affects the price later yep. down the line. And so, I just have I have more questions than answers. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I think that's one thing we could figure out. I mean, I still really hate the. Audible is, you know, and a lot of other people have done this too. I think Libro still does it mostly like this, where they're really pushing you into a membership. They're pushing you. They want you to subscribe to be a member. That means you're going to buy a credit for a discount over what it would cost to buy the book street, which I don't understand. Like Pageboy, good example. I, I put it in the contributor Slack yesterday. There's two different prices in Audible. And I think they just forgot to mention which is the member price and what's the not member price. So even if you've used your credit, it's a different price. It's 33 bucks just to buy as someone off the street of the internet. If you come to Audible oh, and you have no, it's 33 bucks. If you're, if you have credits, it can be as low as 1495. Or if you buy 24 at once, it can be as low as 995. This doesn't make any sense to me. I feel like the pricing of this is more a hindrance to the growth of audiobooks and this membership model. I, I don't understand. It feels like the, a, a relic of a different business and we're still doing this. And a lot of times, even Amazon, Will if you do a search for a particular book, it will point you towards the Audible version of that that says free with a membership, and they yes. really want to convert you that way. And I I think it's hostile, and I think it doesn't make any sense. And more importantly, Kendra, it just makes me ticked off. And I, I think <laughs> what we can agree on here that's the most important thing is how ticked off I'm about. Absolutely, but the pricing. <laughs> treat me like an adult and tell me what the price is. It's it's like I mean I think it's just you know replicating Amazon's general strategy for the things, you know, on their website. So to me, that kind of explained why. And like Libro FM 
is what $14.99 or something. Yeah. Um, but you can only do one credit a month that way. And you do get membership discounts and they do have a lot of amazing sales for yeah. different ones. But you know, Audible even has Audible even has little badges you can earn um yeah. by listening to different things. I love gamification. Mm. Um so like I don't know, they just have I wonder what their research is, like their market research, like what works for them and what doesn't. I kind of I would love to know. Kendra, it's annoying when you make a really good point that's reasonable to and t- gives credit for other people for having reasons for what they do, because there probably is a reason. I'm going to assume for a minute a minute that this is the best strategy for what they want to do in terms of market share, profitability, whatever. You're right. They know what they're doing. No one has more audiobook purchasing data than Audible. And if it were better for them just to price everything at $19.99 and not have memberships or deals or whatever, they'd probably have done that already. I also have, I mean, I think, you know, we'll, I think we both have rabbit trails that are well-traveled about ebook pricing. <laughs> uh, so I'll, you know, insert those here, but yeah. like, I, I think it's, audiobooks are part of that larger conversation. And mm-hmm. I think there's a reason that we don't have any answers is because I don't think they want us to know. They don't want us to know. And they I do don't not. know enough about the rights and royalty structures and everything that goes into it. It's it's a complicated situation and there's a lot of different ways it can go. I'm going to throw a couple more things at you. I know this can't exist. This is a This is a rant I would go on five years ago on the BR pod, but I've learned enough about how the industry works that I get it. But I still would love a bundle where charge me 40 bucks and I get the hardcover, a Kindle version, an audio version, or a Libro version and a whatever version. Charge me full freight to get me all three of them. But because of rights and everything else like that, it doesn't happen. It's still frustrating. There's some books, I want them all. I don't know. Maybe I'm going to listen on audio, but I want the book on my shelf. Or maybe I want the Kindle version so I can go back and refer to it. One of my problems as an audiobook listener, because I don't have the skill set or I haven't built the workflow around it, is taking notes or doing annotations of an audiobook. I still find it very difficult for myself to do. Yes, what I'd like agreed. to do is listen and then go flip through or do control F on Kindle or whatever. And I can't do it. So, you know, each format has their strengths. And I get that they you can't have it all in one um, format, but I'd pay a premium for some books to get them all, or maybe one or the other, or, or one or both. Maybe get, and that you can buy the Kindle and they'll give you a discount on the audiobook and 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 vice versa. But generally what I want is an audiobook and a hardcover to have yes. as part of my collection. Yes, I, I do that all the time. I think my spouse is um trying to get me to not do that since I have almost <laughs> fifteen hundred books in my house yeah, and I can't even funny. read text, which is <laughs> I find it funny. Um well look but it's I, nice you know, to have. You know, you don't it, have to you don't have to make a case. You're it among is. friends here. It's a safe space for <laughs> buying books. And I am I am a big notes taker, so I am one hundred percent here with you like with hannah gadsby for example the mm. audiobook i will not audiobook is the way to go with hannah gadsby i got the print so i could take notes and that would be absolutely wonderful i'm here with you, you need a box set we need a box yes, set situation box set. great idea that's the right but, way to think about it but for for all of them i think it's I think it's really interesting how we're having this conversation because recently the New York Times Daily Podcast came out with like this story about this lady who's been teaching reading the wrong way, right? Mm-hmm. And how she did not acknowledge that reading when you learn to read is a multi-sense process, right? right? Phonics are a sound that helps you read visual text, right? So I think it's kind of surprising to me that pe- more people don't want to follow the text in front of them as they're listening. Yeah. 
All yeah, right. that is interesting. Hmm. I, I mean, that's what I love to do. If I'm able to engage with the text, if I'm having a better day or whatever, I always, you know, I have the audio on and the text in front of me. I can take notes, um, you know, and especially if I'm reading something for work and I want to take notes on it, I always have the print book at least beside me where I can write down notes and flag it and, you know, find stuff later. So I feel like maybe this is a great business idea that someone needs to take up. And I don't, I don't know if you've looked at any <laughs> of the, the marketing hype around this new Apple headset thing, but I bet we could come up with an audio slash note taking slash text presentation slash swiping, pinching or whatever that might be interesting. I don't think I'm a <laughs> goggle person, but you do get that multi-sensory input, right? Where it could be sound and in space and text and maybe some do some other things there. Maybe that's going to be my answer is I'm going to look, I'm going to put on glasses to do my, that sounds terrible. Maybe it'll be great. It doesn't sound like something I'm super inches right now. A couple open questions I have about the future of audiobooks. Like I think this pricing situation, I don't feel like this is sustainable. It's, it's hard to imagine another 15 years we're going to still be like like 14.95 for your one Audible credit or you can only do one Libro FM credit per month, which I don't understand by the way, but I'm sure they have their reasons for yeah. doing that. Um ad supported audiobooks. Pro, con, yes, no. What do you think about this idea? I think it would depend on the context. Like yeah. if I could do, you know how different stream, like Hulu will have an ad version and an ad free. Yep. If I could pay a lower price for an audiobook that I just wanted to listen to one time, I would do it. I would probably okay. do it. So I would be interested. Is it Spotify that's going to be doing that? They say they are. Um, if you haven't listened, if, if you're a first edition only listener, seven episodes in, congratulations and welcome. But on the Book Riot <laughs> podcast, Rebecca Shinsky and I do what's new, cool, and we're talking about the world of books and reading every week. So we're doing story by story, link by link. And we did cover that Spotify was thinking about it. I did a little verbal math processing. I don't see how it's worth it. I get, I, I just, the, the rates you would get for the advertising don't make sense to me. Now, again, I'm not a giant publicly traded um, audio advertising company. So they, you know, caveat, caveat. But because the floor is pretty high for the price of audiobooks, I think it would be hard to make up that revenue in the form of advertising unless they could somehow guarantee that that person wasn't going to buy that book some other way. Maybe it's a backlist title, like maybe it's sufficiently old that you know what the sales are and the ads are going to make more sense. Maybe you have some sort of exclusivity deal. But yeah, just, maybe like a Spotify yeah. exclusive. Yeah, I guess they're going to pay, you know, I mean, I think this is what Audible does with those originals. They're just buying out the royalties, right? They know that Imani Perry is not going to make the royalties back. They're buying that out to have exclusivity so that people come to the Audible platform. And so when you're thinking in terms of user acquisition, the unit metrics can be a little bit different because you're not looking at that particular title. You're looking at the lifetime value of that customer. Maybe that's how they ping it out. Um, but there's a reason we haven't seen it yet, Kendra, which is I don't see how the math works quite yet. Yeah, I think um, it's like when everyone was trying to do that unlimited book subscription model situation, yes, like, yes. I don't know, back in 2014, 15, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I, I don't, yeah. Now, sure it's Kindle Unlimited. So Kindle has some and things rotate in and out and a lot of it Kindles only. So maybe they're in Audible has their own levels where there's some audiobooks included. And that can be great if you're really on a budget or and you don't have um, books that you are specifically interested in. I'm guessing you are like me, more Kendra, where there are books I'm interested. I'm going to go find that or wait a little bit, but I'm not going to look at what's free, generally speaking, and pick from that. Um, 
Yeah, only I only do that with classics because Audible has ah, so many yes. uh, 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 celebrities narrating classics, and I'm always looking. Mm. I mean, I'm a big Virginia Woolf fan, so Nicole Kidman reading Virginia Woolf oh, is like forget about yes, it. yes, please. Yes. But what's interesting is that Audible has started doing different kinds. Uh, Audible has been doing different kinds of audio content. So you have audio books, you have dramatizations, you have podcasts now. Yep. And you have those, you know, uh, they have Audible Originals. They have short, um, they're almost like they'll take a play and they'll turn it into mm-hmm. some sort of audio thing. And I think it's really interesting that Audible and Spotify are just really like looking for anything to try to become yeah. like one up each other. But I think Spotify obviously is better for music. Yep. And Audible has, you know, the majority of the audiobook. Yeah. market or whatever so yeah there's going to be a pretty mediocre business book that's like the war for your ears in five years that's about <laughs> the spotify versus audible you know situation i'm interested like i do i like i love podcasts and audiobooks um i consume them i write about them i think about them and even i can't get too excited about the the marketplace and and largely it's because they're all brokers from third parties in the form of publishers and by extension writers and creators so there's only so much they can do there because publishing has been, you're alluding to Oyster and some of the other, all you can read um, subscription services, Scribd is still the one that's out there, limited selection, monthly fee. Publishing has been more resilient to protecting the basically premium experience of front list titles. They have not been, you know, we're seeing the carnage in the streaming war of HBO and Netflix and Disney of putting everything for streaming, all you can eat, flat monthly fee. They've all gotten wiped out um, and publishing rightly or wrongly, maybe they made the right, the call for the wrong reasons or, you know, stumbled into it, or maybe they were just right. They wanted to protect the value of the front list. And that has a lot of trickle down effects, um, including pricing and availability and other things else like that. Uh, two things I want to get out on real quick. Um, let's talk about AI narration. Broad topic. Do you have a prediction? Do you have a take? Where are we going to go with this? Um, weirdly, this got subsumed by like all this other AI stuff, the narration or audiobooks. Like there's a big story there for a little while in the world of books and reading. And now there's AI everywhere. So I think every field is going to have this. Where do you think this goes? Is there a way to do this responsibly? What are you excited about, if anything? What are you worried about, if anything? I so I wrote an article about this that I mm-hmm. will send to you. Um because I have very strong feelings about about this because I think going back to what we were previously centering uh, saying about centering disabled people's perspectives, um, I think this technology could be used for a better screen reader. Mm-hmm. I I have a screen reader. Anyone who has an iPhone, you can just ask her name because I don't want to wake my. Yes, up right thank now. you very much. Yeah, hey Dingus, do the thing. Yeah, yes, just ask it to. Turn on voiceover and you will experience the difficulties of using um, that on your phone. And I really would love AI narration to create a better voiced version of that. But when it comes to audiobooks, I really think it one, it does a disservice to audiobook narrators as performers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talk about how we can't have movies where they use technology to make Harrison Ford look really young, right? But are we going to do that for, are we just going to scan actors now? And then they like lease out their images, like instead of acting on screen, right? Are we going to use 
I, I feel like there's a lot of conversations about this, but I think that that would be a disservice to actors as an art. Um, and I think that that would be, you know, AI narration is a disservice to narrators. And sometimes they'll say, oh, you can't tell the difference. Are you asking people who listen every day, all day? Or no. Are you just asking someone who casually listens to audiobooks? Because I think that's also a different, you're going to get a different answer right? as well. Um, yeah, sometimes I feel like this conversation about AI narrators is sort of like if a new kind of wheelchair came out and no one who used a wheelchair mm. um, was asked, right? And so all all these people who can move around without without this mobility aid are having opinions about the wheelchair <laughs> and what it should look like and how useful it will be for people who use wheelchairs, but they don't actually ask anyone about who uses wheelchairs. I feel like that's kind of what's happening with AI narration. Yeah. Well, and your point is a good one in, uh, for many reasons, but for even for people who are are listening to audiobooks for accessibility reasons primarily that we can't tell is sort of beside the point because that doesn't really benefit us me not being able to tell is not a benefit to me that's only a benefit to the business quote unquote business case that's cheaper i guess to make the audiobook me being able to tell is not really i'm like wow this audiobook's great i can't even tell if it's ai that's not an endorsement of an audiobook experience that's just you know someone is cutting a corner or trying to lower their production costs or not sign. Well, that's really what, let's be honest, that's what it is. Speed up and, and make the production less expensive or less onerous. And I think your point about the screen reader, and, and really the difference is that's reading arbitrary text, right? Because there may not be an audio version of it somewhere else, whereas an audiobook, there is an audio version of it that's reading arbitrary text in that particular moment. So it's basically on-demand audio production. That makes total sense. But if it doesn't have to be that, what are we losing and what do we gain? It's a little less clear to me as a consumer of audiobooks. Like what's in it for me? Not to be selfish, but here I am. It's my podcast. Uh, at least at least for this moment, we're talking about it together. And I don't see a lot of benefits to me at this point um, in even a very crass kind of way. Last thing, this has come up recently in eBooks and I don't know about audiobooks, what's happening, but ex post facto editing of texts to reflect modern sensibilities, you know, let, let's, let's leave it at that. I guess that's a little bit related to DRM, digital rights management, because I don't really own the file. I own the right to stream that file and that underlying file can be changed. Is this something you've thought about? What do you think about, you know, ownership and changing these digital files? Because they are editable, they will be edited. And that's what's happening, right? Well, I think it's sort of like, what was it? Um, for example, the issues they ran into with The Martian, right? Yes. They were like, it's cheaper just to remake it, right? <laughs> uh, so I was very sad because I like the original narrator or like Salvage the Bones. They re-recorded that one and I was very sad. I like January Lavoy, but obviously like the first one you listen to of your favorite book right. ever, like that's right. That's your you're going to have an emotional attachment, right? right? So um, love January Lavoy, no shade. Uh, but I, I find this really interesting because we have all these conversations about like, um, I don't know, Dr. Seuss and all of these where the estates are like, we're just going to get rid of this or change this rolled doll. I think did that recently. I do find it interesting. I like to see what they'll do with the audiobooks because those audiobooks are separate rights and they yes. are for attached to a very specific text. So, ah, uh, yeah, I hadn't thought about the licensing. Can you actually, would you have to go rejigger your license with the publisher to go change it if you're Blackstone or someone like that? I, I, I think 
I imagine you'd have to in some way, like maybe have, have an amendment to the contract or, or something. Right. Um, I was recently looking for the diary of Anne Frank and I was like, oh, right. There's multiple editions multiple of that. Multiple editions. Right. So mm-hmm. I was like, I need to find the definitive edition. And thankfully it is, is an audio, there's an audio definitive edition. But as a kid, I only read the kid friendly version. Mm. Um, and I realized I'd never read the definitive version. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, again, it's the sadness that comes with the abridged audiobooks. I felt yeah. like that was definitely <laughs> my experience as a as a kid. But um, yeah, it is a very interesting conversation. Yeah, Kendra, what did I miss? You're you're more of an you're more of an audiobook expert than I am. What what should, what question should I have asked? What bullet point should I have had? Anything <laughs> come to mind? Um, I I think. I guess the thing that I would want to say is I think it's really important that we understand that audiobooks are they're a wonderful resource and that if you say even though if say you believe 100% audiobooks are reading what conversations are you having with the non-disabled people in your life or the disabled people who don't need um audiobooks per se for their disability like what conversations are you having and where are those conversations going? Because I see people from book influencers to book media to a very well-known booktuber who makes a point to say like once a month, the audiobooks aren't reading and all these people show up in his comments, like finally someone speaking truth or whatever. Like, I think it's important that we are aware uh, that this conversation is still taking the temperature of ableism. Um, in our bookish communities. And mm. that's something that we need to be aware of and, you know, do our small part to, to push back against that. Because unfortunately, ableism has been part of the audiobook for its yeah. entire life, right? So yeah. um, again, the the, un, the story, untold story of the talking book is a great book for that if you want to know more information. But yeah, I think that's, that's it. Let's get you out on, the, on a somewhat happier note. Um, this is the worst question to ask, and I'm this is unfair, but I'm doing it anyway, Kendra. Shout out an audiobook or two for people to check out that maybe doesn't get as much love as you think it should as an audiobook experience. Ooh, what, John, a... what, did, this is Rorschach test. You just got to say it. You don't have to think about it. You will not be held accountable by the court of rightness for missing something. But what comes to mind? Um, well, Hannah Gadsby, like I said, yeah. that should definitely be on people's lists. Um, Hannah Gadsby is a, com- a queer autistic comedian from Tasmania. So uh, she is amazing. Wonderful, perfect comedic timing. I think this should have been a bigger deal yeah. for sure. 100% one of my most anticipated audiobooks of all time. Um, I would also recommend uh, Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs? <laughs> By Caitlin, I think it's Dotty, and she is, uh, uh, I guess, an undertaker. Is that what we still call people? I'm not sure. Handle mortician undertaker. Mortician, I think it's better. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So she's a mortician, and so this book is specifically geared for kids who ask random questions about dead people, and kids, you know, they don't they're not squeamish, so they'll ask, "Oh, well, if I like." what happens to your hair and your your nails when you die? Or um, like, what if I bury my dog and he's still alive? What should I do? Like, 
just random questions that kids ask. And her performance is hilarious. I absolutely, absolutely love it. Which is funny that I just both recommended nonfiction, but listen, I think I'm 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 you're you're being influenced by me as as almost <laughs> a 90% nonfiction audiobook listener. It's probably just oozing off me. Kendra, thanks so much. Where else can people find you if they want to have more Kendra in their life? Uh, well, you can find me on social media at KD, that's D is in dog, Winchester. And it's funny because Katie, who is the co-host of Red or Dead, is KT. <laughs> and so, and she is KT underscore library lady. So that's that's a fun twi- tongue twister every other week. Um, but then you can also find my Substack Winchester Ave, where I write about disability, audiobooks, Appalachia, all the things. Awesome. This was great, Kendra. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Today's episode is brought to you by Four Eads and a Funeral by Farida Abike Iamide and Adiba Jai Gadar. And let me just say, these two authors are powerhouse YA authors. They write bangers. They write fire novels that slap. Just letting y'all know that off rip. So ex-best friends Tiwa and Saeed must work together to save their Islamic center from demolition. Tiwa doesn't understand what made Saeed start ignoring her, but it's probably that fancy boarding school of his. Anyway, he's unexpectedly staying at home through the summer and she's determined to take a page from him and pretend he doesn't exist. So there's that. But when the Islamic Center accidentally catches fire, it turns out the mayor plans to demolish the center entirely. Shady, shady boots. So will all their efforts be enough to save the Islamic Center, save Saeed, and maybe even save their relationship? Listen, time will tell. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Four Eads and a Funeral by Farida Abike Iyamide and Adiba Jagadar for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books for Young Adults. From number one New York Times bestselling author Jennifer L. Armentrout comes a book I have to tell you about. It's Half-Blood, and it follows Alex and her mom who have spent years on the run from The Covenant, a school where their pure descendants of gods hone their powers and half-mortal teens train to kill demons for them. When her mom is murdered, Alex has two options. She can become a servant for the pures or work twice as hard to catch up in her training. The second option seems easier, but it gets a little complicated, you see, when pureblood Aiden becomes her personal trainer. So falling for Aiden isn't her biggest problem, surprisingly. As demons close in, she must fight to stay alive, even while others around her are dropping dead. So again, Jennifer L. Armentrout does the thing when it comes to romance, fantasy, adventure, all those things. Other books are Blood and Ash, A Shadow and the Ember, all those good things. Make sure to check out Half-Blood by Jennifer L. Armentrout. And thanks again to Bloom Books for Young Adults for sponsoring this episode. All right, Sharifa Williams is here. I'm debuting another new segment. It's the early days of first edition, so there's going to be a lot of new segments, and it could be one of ones. We'll see how they go. So far, I like the the segments we've done. I was telling Sharifa this idea for the Insta buy, I've had for a long time, and often that means it's actually a really good idea, or it means there's a reason you haven't done that, and it's a one of one. And so the Insta buy conceit is this: what authors, when they have a new book out, you're in. You don't need to be convinced. You don't need to see the synopsis you're in. So, and the buying it, okay, you're going to check it out. You're going to borrow it. You're going to wait for it to come out in paperback. It's not like you're there on day one. That's not what we're talking about, but you're just in on this author for whatever 
they're going to do. And the and there's a couple of things that are nice about this idea. One, Shreve's like Shreve, you were saying you're afraid you're going to leave someone off. It's just yes. Instabot. You're not saying they're the best. They're the most important. They're the most whatever. It's just you're there for them. And That's they could true. be on the next three or four if you get beyond five. So there we go. That's a conceit. Sharifa, any questions before we get started? No, but can I offer another caveat? Yes. So <laughs> these are insta-buys for me. It does not mean mm-hmm. they are insta-reads because it takes me forever to get to every gotcha. book I want to read. So I will always buy the books by these authors, but it doesn't mean I will immediately yeah. read these books because I'm bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we we could get into all the caveats. That's that's a really good one. I'm the similar one and I've got some caveats within the individual picks about this. Oh, but nice. otherwise we're going to have a, like an adjective string that's 17 words long. So we're going to stick with instabies with all those caveats. Sharifa, your guest. Uh so you get to select first. Okay, well my first one is kind of a wild card in that I don't know if it would be on everybody's instabies list, but it was the first name that came to mind. It's Helen Oyayemi. Mm. And I love Helen Oyayemi for so many reasons. The first book I read by this author was White is for Witching. And I honestly just bought it because the word witching was in the title. And I really loved <laughs> so the So you're to buy on the word witch. Really, that's what you're saying. Yeah, you've got honestly, a Google alert for witch books. And yeah, okay. I won't lie. That's true. Uh, but once <laughs> I read White is for Witching, I was like, who is this author? What is this? I have never read anything quite like this. Because for anybody who hasn't read it, it's it's a haunted house story, but the strangest kind of haunted house story. It's very like, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. It, it feels like Shirley Jackson-esque, but it's so different. It's just completely different. And so I explored Helen Oyeyemi's catalog. Um, and at the time that I read White is for Witching, she hadn't released her most recent two novels, but... Even back then, I could tell that she was a writer of whimsy and weirdness. Like, that seemed to be her brand. And I don't often come across books featuring particularly characters of color that are whimsical. Like, especially back when I read White is for Witching, it felt really new to me. And when she came out with her divisive novel, Gingerbread, which... I personally loved, but a lot of people had um, some qualms with because of the ending, which I won't spoil for anybody. I loved it because the two characters, there are these two, uh, a black mom and her daughter, and they were in this fairy tale world that was very nonsensical. I love fairy tale reimaginings. And Mm. it was just like, it just felt new to me and fresh, and I love that about her writing because new and fresh is what I read in her writing every time I pick up one of her books, and there is no voice quite like hers. Um, I am not saying everything she does is perfect, but I'm always curious when I hear she's released a new book because I don't know what to expect, quite honestly. I never know what to expect from a Oyeyemi novel and that makes me excited to read whatever it is she's written 
I love that approach because I think my picks are similar. I'm not picking category science fiction fantasy where it's sort of straight up genre. You kind of know what you're going to get. And oh, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Boy Snowbird was the breakout, right? 2014. I yeah. Think that's where she got. She really blew up. And then some people went and read Mr. Fox right after. And I think Gingerbread took a little bit of the shine off the apple. Um, yes. And I hadn't gotten to her most recent one pieces. I, it's, it's a train book, apparently. Um, I don't even remember it came out from Faber and Faber. 2021. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so it's been a couple of years, but I like that you're you're in for what this person is going to do because they could do any different kinds of things. So the review, and I think this describes Oyemi writ large, but I'm looking on Wikipedia now. So Sarah Kutaya in the Chicago Review of Books said of pieces, but I think it applies to Oyemi writ large, delightfully weird and deliciously <laughs> eccentric. I think yes. that's a pretty good <laughs> capture for the whole thing. And both you and I like these kinds of books. So we're going to tend to prefer writers that we trust to surprise us. Yeah. And I guess maybe I'll, I'll, get, I'll get an honorable mention in here because I'm not really sure what to do with Colson Whitehead because sometimes it's mm. science fiction and fantasy and spec fic, but it kind of isn't. So I didn't put him on my list. I think he's my number one overdraw all insta buy for everything which if you listen to me on the book Riot podcast you know but that's he he's the best example for me of like i don't know what it's going to be and it could be noir it could be a crime novel it could be a memoir it could be whatever and i'm in and it just so happens that some of the science fiction fantasy but i cannot do this um in good conscience without at least mentioning that whitehead i don't know we we would need a judge's ruling except we have no judges no one cares so i'm not going to do that but i think that's um, right up there. I think, you know, to go on the, I'm not sure what they're going to do. And, you know, I hadn't thought about this in terms of um, writing that's just outside of a new book. But there, are, this author is someone, if there's a new book, and there are not that many books, to be honest. But even if they write nonfiction, I'm it. And that's Ted Chiang, um, who's most famous for writing, um, uh, well, the, the story that would become the movie Arrival which mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of great affinity amongst us here at Book Riot for that story and that movie. Um, mostly a writer of short stories, but also of late has become really the writer I want to read about technology of late in The New Yorker. He's had two so far this year, one about chat GPT and then one about AI writ large in The New Yorker, which were, as soon as I saw them, they were bookmarked, you know, they're ready to go. I put them on my iPad and I'm, I was going to dig into them with a night. Um, knife and fork. And I guess Arrival, he just hasn't... If there was a new Ted Chiang novel tomorrow, it would be the first one, for starters. It would be a big deal because there's this jump that sometimes writers like this make when they move from short stories to novels. Maybe he's never going to do it. Maybe he's going to Philip K. Dick it, and that's fine, and it's turned out fine for Philip K. Dick. But it hasn't really had the big novel that you can sink your teeth into that gets a moment in the sun. And it's been, what, five years since Exhalation came out? Yeah. Um, that was the last collection, but I just want to read whatever he's writing. And, and I'm not going to lie. Some of it is the, um, any drink in the desert with Chang's corpus, like anything that comes out, I'm dying. Cause I think he's super smart. He usually takes a slightly different tack than I would think of, of, um, taking. And he's very careful and very restrained. And anyway, Ted Chang, that's my, these are no, no order, I should say. I'm just going to be like riffing on whatever your pick is, Shreefad. This is not like number one through five, but. I don't have a my, ranking uh, either. It's by one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't think I All realized right. Ted Chiang has not written as much as I thought he did. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking yeah. at 
his work now and yeah i'm shocked because he feels like two short story collections that's kind of the books i guess he's prolific in short stories okay wow yeah that's a great one um let's see okay well this is the one that i chose that i thought maybe there would be some crossover and it's nk jemison yeah that was gonna be my next two you speak yeah i'll I'll rebut i won't rebut i will file an amicus brief i guess once okay So I chose N.K. Jemisin because obviously the Broken Earth series was like huge. And that was my mm-hmm. introduction. Um, it was not the first book, obviously. Like um, the Broken Earth series was not the first uh, series of books she ever wrote. But I, I don't think I had really been dialed in to Jemison until... Um, mm those books came out and when i read them i was just like this is a master class in world building like this person just knows how to <laughs> create a really immersive world really compelling characters like just everything you could ask for in a book in general, not even just a science fiction and fantasy book, just a book. It was there. And then she's another one who isn't really afraid to play with form and style and do a little bit of genre hopping, mostly between science fiction and fantasy or doing science fantasy. But I've read a few of her stories, and I was going to say um, an under-the-radar read is Emergency Skin, and then I was like, wait, it won a Hugo. Mm. I don't think that's under the radar. <laughs> well, when it comes to Jemison, you've got you've to dig for something under the radar, right? I mean, Rebecca do. and I do this thing when we do drafts where sometimes if there's a particular book, we'll take it off the board just because it's not interesting that we're both fighting for the same thing. And I thought about messing, should we just take Jemison off the board? Right. Like, it's just like we can just RSTLE her for mm-hmm. Wheel of Fortune style. You just get that. But I'm glad you did. And you're right, because um, I, I think unprecedentedly lauded when it comes to the Hugo Nebula ecosystem. Just it's yeah. like it's like Jordan or more, I guess more like Bill Russell has 11 rings. It's like Jemison, and then there's everybody else. So you really got to dig for something that's quote unquote underrated Jemison. You got to get a really early career or short story or something. It really is. And I think that. Some of that is also just because I think a lot of people recognize her as someone who's writing books that are going to become classics of the genre. Like I can see when I think of like, so Octavia Butler is one of my all time favorite Mm -hmm. writers. And, you know, I would never, (laughs) it's hard for me to say, oh, like this is the next Octavia Butler. Like that's not a thing I, I would normally say, but I think that N.K. Jemison has this sort of insightful, like she has a very prescient view of the world mm. that is not unlike what you might read from Butler. And because she's prolific and also writes these stories that are sort of social justice minded and very forward thinking, like that's why it's very easy for me to see like her books are going to stay on my shelves and yeah. hopefully, you know, get passed around and passed down and people are going to be reading these books and they're still going to be, you know, meaningful, I don't know, 50 years from now, in my mind. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, probably the most prolific of the authors on, I mean, there's no question, just in terms of page count, like we've got multiple big trilogies and yeah. series already. Um, in, in addition to quite a bit of other work, I think one thing that's notable, there's many things that's notable, but one thing that makes her stand out really in the history of science fiction fantasy is her background as a counseling psychologist oh, right. and a career counselor. And I think that matters. And I, you know, I'm not a science fiction fantasy expert. I've not done like a, a close reading or study of Jemison, but you can feel that kind of a different sensibility um, coming through. And I think that's one of the th- reasons that she really stands out. Um, she's also, I mean, she turned 51 this year, but she's got, you know, two decades before she's in her 70s. So we're going to get multiple more series, Sharif. Yeah. I'm not sure if you're ready for that. Uh, I am. The caveat to the Insta by here. Oh, yeah. I, I know you're ready for that, but I, <laughs> I hadn't really. This is, a, this is a life's work already, I guess is what I was trying to say. Yeah. And she's kind of just coming off the, uh, the real high of the back-to-back trilogies and all the awards. Um, the City series, this goes into the caveat about Instabuys um, because the, uh, the counter narrative to the Instabuy is O'Neill's Razor, in which I don't read a series until it's done, generally right. speaking. Um, and so I haven't yet made it to The World We Make, which came out last year. It's the second of the Great Cities series or The City We Became. But I'm going to dive into those, I think, while I'm on vacation. I'm going to read them back-to-back and the whole thing's done. I guess there's a prequel story as well. Yeah, um, short that came story. out a few years ago. That was like that was before the first book. Um, so that's an important caveat for the Instabuys. I don't know why I felt compelled to say that, but I did anyway. So that's Jemison on both of ours. So I guess I then return serve back to you because I'm kind of doing Jemison. So why don't you go for another one, Sharifa? Okay, I don't think we'll double up here, but I right. I had to choose Nevo. Which is a more recent mm. Instabuy author for me. Um, but Vo has published a lot since I first read <sighs> yeah. The Empress of Salt and Fortune, which doesn't feel like it came out that long ago, honestly. I don't have the, the publication date in front of me, but it doesn't feel like, you know, more than a couple of years ago. But I don't know what time mm-hmm. it is anymore. So. I could right. be wrong. No, that's fair. Yeah, but so I, my entry point was through Vo's novellas, um, and The Empress of Salt and Fortune was the first one, and it's this lyrical little tale that packs a lot of power. And I was just like, I'm a huge proponent and fan of novellas, and I really pay attention to authors who write great novellas because you don't have Mm. a lot of time and space to really tell a great story. And when that is accomplished, yeah, it is really impressive to me. And it makes me think, okay, I have to watch out for this person and see what else they come out with. And then uh, Vo wrote The Chosen and the Beautiful, and I've, I've mentioned this, I think, on SFF, yeah, but I absolutely hated The Great Gatsby when I read it in high school. <laughs> <laughs> hated it. I hated every character in that book. I was like, I'm never reading this anymore again. And so, of course, because The Chosen and the Beautiful is, um, you know, kind of a retelling of The Great Gatsby from the perspective of a new and different character, I still felt like trepidation mm. going in because I was like, Oh goodness, it's you know going to be this book about these spoiled brats and 
I'm going to be annoyed and I love Nevo so much and I don't want to feel that. But I loved, loved this book. And to the point that it almost made me want to revisit the OG. Like, <laughs> Well, if you're ever up for it, I'll go. I love The Great Gatsby. Well, that's love is wrong. Um, but we, I'll get into it with you. If, okay. you ever, if you never ever need a buddy, you can come on and talk about your uh, reactions to, to that. It's So I think your point about novellas and SFF is super interesting. I never really thought about it. The degree of difficulty for science fiction fantasy is always the world building, right? Because there's mm-hmm. something about this world that's different than our world. And you got to explain that, which I guess non speculative fiction doesn't have to do you have other explanations to do but you have to do everything you have to do in a regular short story plus something about the world and i think a novella is the right length now there are great science fiction fantasy short stories don't get me wrong but i think science fiction fantasy especially lends itself to a novella because it's basically a short story but you have to do the backgrounding and explaining a little Mm -hmm. bit this is an interesting one I read both The Chosen, the Beautiful, and The Siren Queen. I haven't read the novellas, but apparently it's a long cycle of novellas. Like it's going to yes. be four or four or five, which that is not something with which I am familiar. Like a sequence of five novellas. And that's fascinating as a, as a choice. I'd be curious to hear her um, talk about that. And the reason it feels like she's written a lot recently, because it, there's been a bunch since 2020, three novellas and two novels. So that's a lot of Nevo in um, a three-year period. Uh, yeah. Shouts to her and her publication and agents and editor. <laughs> that's a lot of work. Um, it is, especially because it feels very polished. And I'm always like, when people produce that much work in that short a time mm. span, I kind of expect it to be a little bit choppy. Um, because usually yeah. in my mind, because I'm cynical, I'm like, oh, somebody's agent or editor was like, you need to... You you need to ride the coattails of this wind of success and just like write as right. fast as you can and publish as much as you can and I think oh not much time must be spent on really thinking about the story and being really thoughtful about it but I never no. I have never gotten that sense with any of those books. Um, I guess I will go next. Yeah, I guess this is a good pick because it's someone with two to three books, right? It's, so it's mm-hmm. not, you know, it's not Jemison, um, well, and Chang, I guess it's two. Anyway, I don't know. Charles Yu, who's written three, I guess two, pardon me, two books, um, and then some short story collections as well. I don't know how you do this, but two novels, Interior Chinatown, which won the National Book Award um, a couple years ago, and then the one that blew my mind was how to live safely in a science fictional universe meta science fiction and fantasy is kind of what he's doing i don't know how to describe charles Yu. um playful experimental literary science fiction and fantasy um you know was select you know identified early was one of the uh, national book foundation's 535s you know this was 15 years ago (laughs) Uh, and turned out to be a great pick <laughs> for the, yeah, that you got good value on that draft pick right there. Um, I, I'm not sure what else to say. I mean, if you haven't picked up these books, I think this is trends towards the if you're a literary fiction lover, I'm not sure if you are yeah. a I don't know, foundation kind of classic sci fi. This is necessarily going to be your jam, but maybe I, I don't have a good read on that. But I think one of the most exciting writers, bar none. Um, and I just 
I just happened to have him be able to pick him for an Instabine science fiction fantasy because that seems to be his interest for now. You could tell me his next book is about almost anything, and I would believe it. <laughs> and it could have any kind of weirdo... I'd say like kind of almost like an elevated Charlie Kaufman-esque sensibility applied to science fiction mm-hmm. fantasy is maybe how I would describe it. But that's Charles Yu. Do you have Charles Yu opinions, Sharifa? Uh, I love the cheeky nature of Charles Yu books. I loved How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. That was, that's, mm-hmm. I have not read Interior Chinatown and I have been yelled at by my best friend <laughs> about it because, you know, it is, as everybody says, so good. But I, I did read How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe and I was just like, this is amazing. This is exactly what I want because I like that, you know, th- that meta nature. And I, I love that he, again, he's another one that really experiments with form and does something yeah. really unique with the genre. That's a great yeah. one. If you're looking for TV watching out there, he worked with his brother is on um, the current, it just was released or it's actually coming out I don't think it's all the episodes are out, but of American Born, Ch- Born Chinese. Oh, yeah. It's on Disney Plus, which is a series adaptation of Jane Wen Lang's um, seminal graphic novel comic series. I don't actually. I think you can buy it all in one set, on one book now. But I think it came out sequentially, um, and it's a family slash kid show. But you can see Charles Yu's fingerprints on it. It's quite a bit different from the graphic novel so that you know it's a little more family friendly there's more action it's longer some of the ideas are very similar my son read american boy chinese and my family were watching the the series as it comes out and there's a couple of like oh that i wonder if that's a charles Yu joint that he flips in there um about some of the meta-ness and twistiness and stories Mm. within stories and things like that so it's a good watch a good family summer watch um better certainly than any family fair i was watching with my parents (laughs) when i was 10 years old Except Star Trek The Next Generation, which I will ride for till I die, but that's a different podcast, Sharifa. All right, uh, so Charles Yu is mine, and then you're up uh, next. Yeah, okay. So Victor Laval had to be on this list. Yeah. Gosh, I, I really struggled. Okay, go tell. I'm glad you picked it so I didn't have to feel bad. Okay, good. Uh, so uh, I have like a long and storied history with horror in general, and... I probably annoy people on the podcast who are not that into horror by always talking about SFF horror picks specifically, but it is my first love. You know, when I was a kid, my parents let me watch Tales from the Crypt, and I read a whole book about Tales from the Crypt from front to back when I was younger. So I was, but I spent a lot of time with like Stephen King when I was younger, when I was reading horror, and... I also was kind of curious about, you know, cosmic horror. And I remember people talking a lot about Lovecraft when I was, you know, a teenager and definitely in my 20s, especially in the, you know, goth world. Lovecraft was Mm. a big name. I tried to read Lovecraft, hated it. And Mm. then I read about Victor Laval and read that, you know, he was kind of writing in response to having been a fan of Lovecraft, but then realizing, you know, all the problematic things with this yeah. classic author. 
And so I picked up the Ballad of Black Tom, which again, novella, um, another mm-hmm. amazing novella writer. And I was like, okay, I totally love this. Like I can get with this. This is what this genre, this subgenre is. I can do it. And so he really introduced me to what cosmic horror could do. And then I realized that he had other books out and that he was doing a lot of horror in general and really writing stories that were not afraid to look at the darkest corners of the human mind. (laughs) And I loved that. I was like, this is exactly what I've been looking for as a horror fan. And it sort of reignited my passion for these dark, twisty stories that did a lot of really interesting things. I mean, on SFF, yeah, we had a whole episode to dedicate a book club to lone women and to talk about that book. And that book was so different as well from like The Changeling, for instance, which is one of those truly horrifying works um, where he really goes there, goes to that place you do not want to see. And Lone Women did something different. You know, it's this homesteading book set in a sort of weird West setting. And I... I just haven't ever come across something of his that I didn't really enjoy and haven't at least tried to read in one sitting. So mm-hmm. he was an automatic on my list. Another super prolific author as well. Yeah. Lo- Lone Woman, my favorite novel of the year so far. Um, I- I'd say. For yeah. Wow. Said that before. Uh, I think the reason, and I hadn't put it together until you said it, the reason he's not on my list is he. C- I don't love real scary horror. So, like, I, I'm That's not going to do the changeling. When that came out, I was like, no, not for me. Um, the Devil in Silver came out in 2012. That's my first experience. I don't remember it being that scary. It was kind of creepy and weird, but I don't remember it being horror horror. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I pick and choose as I see. And I think he, I don't know, Lone Woman got a lot of great notices. I don't know how well it's selling. It feels like maybe he could level up, not not in terms of craft or anything, but just in terms of sales, right? Like, this is one world, big hardback release. It's a novel. I'm sure it's been optioned. It's pretty recommendable to horror fans and science fiction, but even mystery thriller fans. Like, it has a pretty, a pretty um, mystery, well, literally a mystery box setup <laughs> where you get this woman who's dragging this box across and she won't let anyone open it. And usually it's something fine inside a box like that. Like, you know, Laffy Taffy, it's just full of like... Um, uh, regular things in a box that no one wants you to open. That's it's, it's usually fine, and it turns out to be fine. No, it does not. Uh, that's a really good one. He's been around. A, yeah, you're right. He's got. See, ninety nine was slap boxing with Jesus. Um, boy, that's twenty five years ago. Oh my How gosh, he? he's. Yeah, he, he must wasn't. Be he in was twenty seven fi- when that first one came. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to insult anyone. Babies. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No. No. Seventy two babies. Um. Very, very interesting author. Um, I guess my last two are kind of going to be boring, I think, because they're the most (laughs) well-known. But I couldn't in good consciousness. It is Father's Day week here, Sharifa. So for all the dads, I have to pick Andy Weir, which is the dad's science fiction and fantasy (laughs) writer right now. I've recommended more Andy Weir books to people in my life, mostly my brothers and my dad, (laughs) I should say. Um, But... 
I, you know, The Martian was a phenomenon. It's one of the most fun reading experiences I've had. Artemis was okay. And then Project Hail Mary, I continue to talk about and love. And everyone I've talked about has really enjoyed that book. Also do it on audio if you can, if you haven't. But this is into the more science-y science fiction and fantasy, I guess we should say. We haven't done a yeah. lot of hard sci-fi yet. So, And um, Weir is an engineer and programmer by trade and really cares about the details of the science. Um, and I think that's always a fun wrinkle, right? That That's what can make him different. A warm-hearted, gener- a warm-hearted and generous. It's not going to blow your mind in terms of social issues or ideas, but you're going to get a really good premise executed really well with that very technical, how they do that, how are they going to figure it out element. And that's just damn fun. I don't know what else to say. Andy Weir's books are damn fun and there's a place for that. Uh, so I'm going with Andy Weir for my penultimate Instabite pick. That's a good Father's Day pick. I, I would yeah. second that. Um, well, so my, you're down to your last? You're down to your last I know. One. Where's my drum roll? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I've got my last one and it is Becky Chambers. And speaking of... I thought of, about this. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Speaking of, like, you were talking about hard sci-fi and, you know, how we didn't have any... I, I am not as organically driven to hard sci-fi um, as mm-hmm. I am fantasy or even, like, science fantasy and things like that. It's just for whatever reason, I think, from the early days of, like trying to read something like foundation. <laughs> like I, mm. I think I, I just, it didn't do it for me. And so for a long time, especially when we were first starting out with SFF, yeah, I was a little nervous because I knew that I ha- had kind of a, a dearth of science fiction reading. And then I came across the long way to a small angry planet. And it kind of reminded me that, you know, Science fiction was not just one thing. It did not have yes. to be a very sober, serious, sterile experience that it could also be fun and have adventure and really funny, interesting, um, clever characters and found family, which is one of my all-time favorite mm-hmm. tropes. And... So once I I came across that book and read it, I was like, okay, I I love I love this book and I can finally be on my way to reading more science fiction. I just know now what type of science fiction I gravitate to personally as a reader. And it was obviously a huge sensation. It had a big fandom. Um, and mm-hmm. I think I almost want to say it started out as a self-published novel and then... No, I don't know the answer to that. You keep talking. I'll look it up. Uh, yeah, I, I could have sworn. But one of my favorite stories is that, you know, we, we kept talking about this series by Chambers on SFF. Yeah. And somebody <laughs> took the time to write in and tell us, I was so annoyed that you kept talking about the series and it was always Becky Chambers, Becky Chambers. And then I finally read The Long Way to Small Angry Planet. And now I understand why you won't shut up about it. And it was like <laughs> one of my favorite emails 
from the SMF yet inbox. I will never forget that moment. And I was like, yeah, it's just great. And then the Monk and Robot series came along, starting with a Psalm for the Wild built, and it arrived at a time when I really needed to feel hope. And I was like mm. flip-flopping a lot between interests and pursuits and Reading that book was a balm, and I think that's what Chambers books are to me in general and why I always pick them up because they are a balm, and, you know, I will always need those books and those stories. As a, Science fiction as a good hang can feel like a contradiction in terms, but that's what this is. That's what yeah. that's, uh, the way for yeah. it is, I should say. Yeah. And you're that's right, it was self-published, and she had enough of a fandom that she kick-started the publication of it right. uh, into, you know, I don't exactly know the the TikTok of how that all was put together. Um, this, this the, the here, O'Neill's Razor has a huge problem here, because I read the first one, not realizing it was a series. Oh, no. And I haven't picked up the rest, and, they, and it, it was said it was over with the Galaxy in the Ground Within. But there's rumors. There's another one. Like, it's listed in some online bookstores for a 2024 publication date. I'm in a real pickle here, Sharifa. I don't know what to do. I was so excited that the last one was going to be last. And I was like, well, maybe it's not. Uh, and then I lost the thread a little bit. And I've forgotten what's happened. So I'm at sea a little, bu- a little bit. I will get to this at some point. Um, but I, a, a singular voice. And it is a very... It's one of the most recommend... I've recommended it to a lot of people, um, the Book Riot podcast during Moms, Dads, and Grads, for the reasons we talk about. It's like, oh, yeah. there's not a lot like it. Like, it's a good Swiss Army recommendation. It's a good for a lot of different kind of people. But what's the book you recommend after it or this series? I don't know what that is. It's almost like you've got to go Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Like, that seems to me the closest kind of read in terms of sensibility and fun. I think this is more warm and relationship-oriented. Yeah. So. Um, anyway, it's 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 a wonderful addition to have, and um, if any little birdies know what the fate of this series is, either way, just to put me out of my misery, uh, first edition at uh, bookriot.com. You can shoot me an email. Okay, my last pick, and I don't know that this makes any more sense than Colson Whitehead would have, um, because I don't think you could, if you bet that the next book would necessarily be spec fic, let alone science fiction, you could lose that bet. Hmm. But Station Eleven meant so much to me, and Ugh. I thought Sea of Tranquility was so good. Yes. And I just had to put Emily St. John Mandel on here. Um, maybe it's just because a higher percentage of her books have been science fiction than Whitehead. But I, once I was like, why not? If you're going to do this, why not? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's my list. Sharifa, absolve me. Um, I need this <laughs> you're absolved. You. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Um, but she, I think, is the pinnacle of the mainstream literary genre move into sci-fi, being really the point of the arrow of commercial slash literary, uh, upmarket literary fiction, right? That, that, that sells a lot of books, gets adapted to TV shows, but also is trying to do something a little different and push boundaries and be more complicated. And I, I would sign up for whatever she's interested in. I remember Emily, reading Emily St. John Mandel when she was blogging for The Millions, because she started blogging oh, for The wow. Millions right when Book Riot came out. And she did a couple of pieces I linked to, and she was kind of doing the same thing. So it's been so awesome to see her launch into the stratosphere, well, into beyond, into the solar system and beyond. Um, so Emily St. John Mandel, I always look at her career with, with great interest and always am interested in what she's doing and will read whatever she, she works on. So 
that's my last pick. Um, why don't you recap your list, Sharifa, and I'll recap mine. We'll get out of here. Okay. Well, my list was Helen Oyayemi, N.K. Jemison, Nevo, Victor Laval, and Becky Chambers. So mine, uh, going backwards, Emily St. John Mendel, Andy Weir, we both had N.K. Jemison, Ted Chang, and Charles Yu. That's yeah. Instabuys. Sharifa, thank you so much. You can find Sharifa on the Science Fiction Fantasy Podcast. I did a recording with you this week that I think will come yeah. out after this, just because of the way the things go. Um, we were talk- You guys do news. Um, we did some news stories, and you do a discussion segment. I threw Sharifa a power rank. Not a really a power rank. We'll be looking back at the year in Science Fiction Fantasy of 2013, which was a lot of fun. That um, was so much so fun. you can check it's out there. Time. And uh, you can find links to that in the show notes and Sharifa's, whatever social Sharifa uh, wants people to follow on, you can find it there. Sharifa, thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. I don't know if people are going to like this, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it too. I hope people check out all of these authors because these are some great picks, if I do say so myself. Yeah, good job, us. (laughs) And that's it for today's show. Thanks to Kendra Winchester and Sharifa Williams for coming on. Kendra does Red or Dead for us. And you can check out her own podcast, Read Appalachia. You can find her social links and links to that show and her shows in the link in the show notes. Also to all the stories and books we talked about and authors, you can find them bookriot.com slash listen or in the podcatcher notes you're playing right now. If you want more science fiction and fantasy, Sharifa and Jen Northington host RSFF Yeah, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. I even make a guest appearance coming soon. I think it comes out. And on that episode, Sharifa and I look back at the most popular science fiction fantasy books of 2013 and what that particular moment was. It's a pretty interesting conversation. It was fun to be on the show. And if you have a minute and you like First Edition, the show you're listening to right now, it would be amazing if you rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts. You can find links to the First Edition email newsletter, Twitter, Instagram accounts in the show notes. And I love and respond to listener email and feedback. So please do email me at firstedition at bookriot.com. All right, that's it. Until next time, read something great.